Hello and welcome to RMIT Gallery today. RMIT University acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners of the land on which the university stands. RMIT University respectfully recognises elders both past and present. Welcome to this uh, second event in Fast Fashion, The Dark Side of Fashion, presented by RMIT Gallery and the Goethe Institute. Thank you for joining us today at our change-making um, panel uh, for this uh, very inspiring, uh, thought-provoking and I think very confronting exhibition about waste, fashion and uh, the economic, social and uh, the human victims of the cheap bargains we wear. Today's uh, panel will be led by Claire Press, who um, is the author of a new book called Wardrobe Crisis, which we do have actually for sale at the gallery. Claire will be in conversation uh, with Berlin designer um, Ina Boot, uh, um, Melinda Twelly, who is the driving force behind Fashion Revolution Australia New Zealand, and David Gillies Kay, who is, has been a board member um, at the Council of Textile and Fashion since 2011 and CEO for the past 18 months. Claire will be the host of the conversation. There will be time for questions afterwards. We'll be recording, so please use the microphone, which we'll be passing around. So I'd like to introduce today our um, very effervescent um, MC, Claire Press, who is a journalist, author, and slow fashion expert, and very passionate about um, change in this industry. So um, her book, The Wardrobe Crisis, How We Went From Sunday Best to Fast Fashion, was named one of the best books of 2016 by The Age. Claire is currently launching The Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast, so you can actually listen to inspiring information about this uh, topic wherever you are. Throughout her long career as a fashion insider, Claire has, been, has reported on the shows from New York, London, Milan and Paris, and she is currently Marie Claire's fashion editor-at-large and Daily Life Sustainable Size style columnist. And uh, her last column, I think, had a piece about the fast fashion exhibition. It did. So, okay, I will now hand you over to the capable hands of Claire Press. Please welcome Claire and our panel. Thank you, Evelyn, for those very kind words. Welcome, everybody. I liked being described as effervescent. That's a long thing to live up to. Welcome, everybody, to our panel discussion today. Um, by now, you may, you should, have had chance to check out the exhibition uh, at the gallery. And if not, then I hope that you'll stick around afterwards and take it in. It's fantastic. Um, I'm sure it will send your mind buzzing. We've learned a lot about the global fashion industry, which is worth, as I often say, an estimated $2.4 trillion a year, and yet which too often has heart-wrenching impacts on people and planet. But this panel discussion is about solving problems. We're going to hear from three experts who are leading the way when it comes to thinking about change-making around these issues. And I would just say we invite you to join the conversation. Please share with your friends, share on social media, use our hashtags. What are our hashtags, Evelyn? I imagine they are... Uh, let's do... RMIT Gallery. Fast fashion, slow fashion, and um, you know, tag where you are and please tell your friends because we really want this to be an ongoing conversation with the Melbourne fashion community. Great. <laughs> so without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to our panel. 
we have with us, especially from Germany, the incredible Inna Buddha. Um, now, Inna has an MA in sustainability in fashion. She is a future-thinking designer and entrepreneur. She teaches at ESMOD in Berlin and lectures at, in sustainable design strategies at universities in Hamburg, Copenhagen, and London. She's won a bunch of awards, and she's the founder of a fascinating organization called Design for Circularity. And that's a sustainable design lab that operates outside of Berlin and works with brands. Um, all the work that they do is about initiating recyclable product and system innovation. And she's just a font of knowledge about this stuff. It's really cool. So I urge you to check out more of her work after this. Thank Melinda Tuali. Melinda joins us and you will be probably very aware of the incredible work that she does as the Australia and New Zealand Country Coordinator for Fashion Revolution. Uh, Melinda is a former deputy chair of the Fair Trade Association of Australia and New Zealand. And for five years she won, she ran, sorry, the award-winning independent sustainable goods store in Sydney called I Ran the Wrong Way. Um, but Mel, as I said, is perhaps best known as a coordinator and spokesperson for Fashion Revolution here. Fashion Revolution is a non-for-profit global movement with teams in over 90 countries that began to raise awareness of unethical fashion after Rana Plaza. It campaigns for systemic reform in the industry with a focus on the need for greater transparency from brands. And last but not least, we have David Giles Kay. Giles Kay? Yes, yep. David Giles Kay, who is the CEO of the Council of Textiles and Fashion, which is Australia's peak industry body for the textile, clothing and footwear sectors. Um, they're doing some really interesting work, particularly around emerging designers. And check out their sustainability portal, which has some fantastic information around sustainable fashion, but also the curated platform, which helps emerging designers get their messages out. Um, Dave is also involved in a technology company called Imagine Intelligent Materials, which uses graphene to develop applications for smart clothing. That's, that's fascinating. That's right. Yep. That's fascinating. We should get some questions about that afterwards. Now, I want to start by asking you all the same question. Um, Mel, I'm going to start with you. We're here to talk about sustainability. What does that phrase mean to you, sustainable fashion? And should we even be talking about that, or should all fashion be sustainable? I think in, in thinking of the actual terminology of sustainability, for me it means uh, longevity, it means delivering the needs for those today, of today without compromising uh, those in, in, for the future generations. And um, in that respect, there are many brands that are actually adhering to those principles today. And so I think it is still relevant. Um, and should all fashion be sustainable in that sense of the word? Absolutely, yes. Should we be looking forward to a future where we can talk about fashion on its own without having, having to add um, and qualify it by having attributes of ethical or sustainable or, or eco? Um, absolutely. But I think, I think given that it's, it's um, so particularly commonly understood in the vernacular now, it still needs to be applied. Uh, for those that are seeking more responsible fashion choices, uh, they do need to have that delineation between conventional practices and those actually practicing what we know as sustainable today. I will qualify that by saying that um, because it's such a general term, there are so many different applications and understanding of that from everything from local um, to you know material choices mm -hmm. to fair trade. And I suppose my concern is more with things like fair trade being abused because that actually is a system that has very um, 
defined metrics and principles accorded to it, uh, and there's a lot of misuse of that terminology which muddies the water and greenwashing is a result. That's actually such a good point. And, and the term fair trade is used in so many different ways. But with a, can you explain that actually, Mel? So with a capital F and a capital T, it refers to the Yeah, movement. I mean, the, the fair trade, the broader movement, um, and there's the fair trade, there's the certification system. Uh, generally, you know, broadly, it's incorporating human rights as well as environmental into the system, but guaranteeing a minimum wage. Um, and then when there's a premium on those wages, it's decided uh, in a um, common... Um, decision-making process as to where those additional premiums will go to to actually benefit the community. So it's a, it's a, a broad system which different standards sit under and each standard has a very defined metrics. Thank you. Dave, what, do you, what is your take on the application of these labels? What does sustainable fashion mean to you? Uh, so sustainable fashion is uh, I mean, it's exactly what Mel said, but uh, to me, you're two, two broad categories. One is around impact on the environment uh, that we live in, and then the second one uh, on how people are treated in the supply chain. And, and this exhibition picks up on that beautifully. Uh, and, um, and then the second part of the question about, you know, should everyone be sustainable? Absolutely, is, uh, there should be. And... Um, uh, and I think it's the new baseline for any businesses that are that are in our industry, especially ones that are starting. Uh, we do a lot of work with emerging designers. They all almost all come into it, into the industry, with that as a baseline. Do they? Um, that to me yeah. is great to yeah, hear. They do. Is it, is it the case with more established designers? I was going to ask you, how often does that phrase come up in conversation with the established fashion industry in Australia? It's very much on the agenda, uh, and I think. Um, uh, you know, an important piece of this is that it's really driven by consumers. So when consumers are ed well educated about what the issues are and the war on waste, um, which Mel was part of, um, was a great uh, way of educating consumers on this. And a lot of people have been doing for a lot of time, um, um, you know, programs that are trying to educate consumers. And then obviously then consumers will demand that from their labels. And you know, we obviously live in a world now where... Uh, um, the negatives about not being sustainable or not doing something that the consumer thinks mm. is important has a, can have a massive impact on a brand. So large, small, uh, they're all aware of it. Whether you know, there's a big difference between you know who's actually engaged. I think we'll go into a bit more. We will. Uh, how engaged people are, but it's very much on people's agenda. Yeah. Well, good. That it can't. People can't escape it. It's out there in the conversation, and big brands that are not engaging with it actually do have to do that now because of this. Because we're all here talking about it today, and this is happening. Mm. Ina, I wonder if you would be able to share with us your take on that, and particularly yeah. around fabrics and textiles and that issue of waste. Yeah, sure. So I think um, sustainable fashion. We we need to take a holistic approach, um, as we heard before, like the social, ecological, and economical level of it. Um, but my very personal take on it as designer is also to see it um, as a possibility to create a future without waste and a future without resource scarcity and to create products that have a long and efficient life but also an endless value that can be recycled to new fibers again where we really create uh, yeah, just nutrients for new products basically. And um, this is also the core of our kind of design for circularity initiative where we work together with brands um, to make new material developments that can be recycled fiber to fiber um, and also 
the whole collaboration part of it because you need to team up with recyclers. You need to team up with um, yeah, new businesses that can take the clothing back, that can kind of reuse uh, and have new business models around it to reuse fashion as well. So um, I think it's on the product and on the system level where we need to act. Just the use of that term collaborate, collaboration, collaborative, I find that quite revolutionary because historically fashion has not been a collaborative industry. Mm -hmm. So I find that quite revolutionary. Mm -hmm. But you also say something that's even more revolutionary, which is, and I read this in a previous interview that you'd given, um, that there's no point in designing fashion for the current system. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I got very frustrated when I had to realize for what kind of industry I'm working here. And um, even if I design sustainable clothing, um, maybe we do things a little bit better, like a big, big better, but um, we're designing for the wrong system because the system can't really hold this value. Um, even if it's a recyclable product, how can we assure that it actually ends up at a good place where it is reused or recycled? Um, so... I really believe that um, we need to set up these systems and we uh, kind of, yeah, this is also what we do with our extended closed loop platform. So we have partners to extend the product lifespan and also to close the loop through recycling. We're going to get into a lot more about what that means when it comes to closing the loop. But Mel, we're talking about revolution. We need to bounce this back to you. Is the fashion system broken? <laughs> yes. Um, and let's qualify here, it's the whole fashion system. So um, we don't delineate um, so much in, sense, in the sense that we do believe that it's a, there's a broken value chain um, between fast fashion and fashion broadly. Um, the whole sector shares the same issues, whether it's pollution uh, or labour rights, whether you're a luxury brand or whether you're a fast fashion brand. Uh, you are still in that same supply chain and many times uh, those same brands are working with the same suppliers and the wage, same wages are being played, uh, the same issues of pollution and environmental stewardship uh, still arise, whether you are buying a garment that's $150 or $10. So the whole system in that sense is broken. Um, and, you know, what we... what Go on. No, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I suppose when we, when we look to how we explain that um, from an environmental perspective, um, it has, you know, an appalling track record in, the, in that sector and shares some fairly um, daunting statistics. 25% of the world's pesticides are used by the sector. 20% of the industrial water pollution is, uh, thanks to the fashion sector, over 100 million trees each year are felled um, in the production of cellulosics, um, your rayons and your um, modales. Uh, and 30% of that's from endangered forest sources. So um, in that sense, it, 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 it wears um, a fairly um, tarnished label. Of course, from the labour rights perspective, um, everything from malnourishment of garment workers, you know, in Cambodia, over 30% of the workers are technically defined as, as malnourished, uh, not getting the sufficient calorific intake each day. Uh, the sector produces um, largely in the de developing world, over about 75% of what we wear comes from those regions, and they're responsible for the lowest minimum wages in the world, particularly in countries like Bangladesh and Myanmar. So um, in that sense, um, there's a lot of broken links, and I think uh, the biggest issue is the opacity. So it's such a, such a complex supply chain, very, very, very deep. Traceability is difficult. Um, even for the largest brands in the world with the biggest CSR teams, it's hard to trace back to the source, uh, and it's 
design, it, the design of it has been is quite quite opaque. So what you see, what you can't see, you can't manage, mm. uh, and that's one of the biggest difficulties. That sort of outsourcing of the issue, which everyone is addressing, but that is a result of why why those issues have sort of been outsourced. And, and I think if we had a polluted Yarra River that was the colour blue, oh, yeah, we, it wouldn't it wouldn't be that colour for and so long. <laughs> if there are any fashion students in here that want to take notes, I'd be taking a note if I had a pen there of that. What you, what you can't see, you can't manage. I mean, it is all about transparency, right? Some people are going to feel overwhelmed by this. This exhibition is confronting in itself. This conversation is confronting. Obviously, it's too big a question to answer in two minutes on a panel, but Mel, can you share a good news story with us about what we can do to fix it? And maybe pick one area where you think, you know, some good work's being done. Um, yeah, I mean, I do spend every, every day working on this. I'll, I'll qualify my answers with whilst I, I represent Fashion Revolution, I also work and consult to brands in responsible supply chain sourcing, both advising on the risks in their supply chains, but looking at the plentiful opportunities that there are uh, today. And a lot of the brands are taking those up. Um, I think... The, the, the biggest area of investment is uh, R&D in textile innovation and obviously circular fashion and, and closed-loop production um, is a very large part of that. But given resource scarcity, given the threat to business models that rely largely on raw materials, um, you know, I think it, it's, it's no longer a reputational risk, it's an operational risk to supply chains. If you don't have enough cotton or if there's not enough water to grow that cotton, you will not be able to make your product and you won't be able to you know, make your profits. So essentially, um, brands are addressing that risk by looking at circularity and particularly the fast, fa fast fashion sector have been mm. um, the fastest to take that up and invest in it. And we've seen H&M with their design awards and CNA Foundation with their Cradle to Cradle certified seven euro t-shirt. Um, that's, that's where the, the biggest, I think, opportunity is um, in terms of addressing some of those issues. It doesn't address the pace. Uh, it addresses environmental impact. Um, but of course, I don't know, Ina has a point about that. Accessibility to being able to recycle or compost or biodegrade is the other piece of that puzzle. There's no point designing for half of a solution and not actually being responsible stewards for the full full solution but uh, yeah I would say that textile innovation is, is, is yeah. one of the most exciting areas mm. I mean I was actually going to bounce that to, to Dave but I think we should pull Inna in here and say can you tell us a little bit more about on the back of what Mel's just been talking about with circularity what does circularity mean and, and who's doing it and, and can you just maybe just decode that a little bit for some of us that find the concept quite hard to grapple with? Yeah, of course. So I think um, uh, first of all we need to separate the idea of the cradle to cradle thought where we think of um, uh, really um, the material that goes to a new material again, so the recycling part, but also the circular economy part, which is more about the business model of prolonging the life cycle of a garment with repairing, refurbishing and so on. And what we need to know about the first part of the like design for recycling um, the old outdated recycling method is mechanical and it's kind of shopping down the fibers making it shorter and shorter so that the value is kind of decreasing we can't really make new fibers out of it. We need to mix it with 70% new fibers. So um, when we 
the, the reason is because we have fiber blends in a lot of different materials, also haberdasheries like trims uh, on the material. So this also uh, disturbs the recycling process. So what, do they have to pick it all out individually? So yes, I mean the it's... Threads, cut off the buttons? Yeah, they are, because you, it's, it's um, much too much work to just cut off a button, they just chop it all, you know, like and make it really, um, really tiny bits and pieces. And, and thereby um, the fiber is too short to make new fibers. But if we design from the beginning a monomaterial product that has only one material where you can, for example, disassemble the pieces, uh, the zippers, um, or it's kind of, yeah, full one material, then we can recycle it to much, much higher value. We can make 100% new fiber out of it. And this could actually be the feedstock for our, like, next products, because the amount that we are throwing away is the same that we are kind of consuming all year. You know, it's... And, Right now, this uh, amount of throwing away like gets bigger and bigger, and there is no solution basically. So um, yeah, and on the other hand, the resources get scarcer because we're not taking recycled fibers. Um, so it would be just—it's such a kind of brilliant model to uh, get it uh, in the round and um, use it like this. So more designers focusing on these ways of trying to be more creative with textiles to begin with, not just the shape of a dress, you know? Exactly, and um, about the circular economy part, there's the same uh, yeah, possible impact of a designer. We can actually uh, take action throughout the whole life cycle. Sometimes we just think our impact is only like in the beginning, but it's actually throughout the whole life cycle, and we can make more multifunctional garments and like repairable garments. There are actually design strategies behind how you can, can offer those services. Dave, this sounds like a rosy future to me. When you talk to um, local brands, big ones, let's talk, like, we don't have to name names, but when you're talking to the guys who are on our high street here in Melbourne, how much are they engaged with this idea of, are they engaged at all with this idea of circularity? And just, I'd love you to share just some of your insights on what kinds of conversations are happening around this area. Well, I think the idea of circularity is, is one that, is, is still quite new. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think if, if we look at going from... So we've come a long way uh, over the last sort of five years or so, I would say, and circularity might be the sort of next sort of stage. But I think uh, where the, um, the big brands in Australia are right now is, uh, you know, there's a lot of them. Um, and Mel and I work with, um, with, with a lot of those guys. Uh, who are really, really engaged with trying to do a much better job of sourcing sustainable product and ethical, ethically produced product. Um, I was talking to one of the, the big labels a couple of days ago and we we're just we're talking about fast fashion and um, so we want a little bit more on the premium side uh, and they were saying that they're slowing down their, their, um, their range um, releases really? for this very reason. That made me... Uh, Really? Yeah, yeah, uh, and to get with the with the um, with the with the focus on trying to have uh, their consumers realise that they can wear their their garments for more than one season. Uh, so this is one of the big guys, uh, and um, uh, and 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 companies. There's a number of companies who are um, who are, are, are looking deeper into the supply chain. I think we'll come back to. Bit more on fast fashion in a minute, but we're looking deeper into the supply chain, trying to work out how to to do that better. And I think the idea of circularity is something that will come in because um, it's a really compelling case when when you, it's, you're design led. It's, it's just starting with starting with that end in mind. 
Uh, and I think, you know, with... I was also going to say that the research capability that we have here in Australia, um, you know, obviously with RMIT is a, you know, a really powerhouse in that, but there's a lot of other um, universities and we have CSIRO, a lot of capability. So we have, we have the capability to do, to do this we here. Do. Um, and Deacon. But we, you're right, we need the big brands particularly to be, be sort of driving that. Yeah. And again, it comes back to the consumer driving them. Yeah, I mean, I know we're at RMIT, but I am just going to mention Deakin because there is this, um, I think it's called Frontier Materials Institute, which is allied to the Deakin University, and they've, they're doing some really interesting things about how we can recycle stuff, and the guy from who heads up the team there that won the um, one of the awards from H&M this year, yeah. their work is about pulverizing old denim in order to break it down into tiny fine powder to make it into pigment, which they then fire at virgin denim to dye it. And apparently they can dye... I've forgotten the statistics, actually. I will find them and share them with you afterwards, but I think it's something like it reduces it by ten times the amount of dyes that we've had to use. But we do have that power. We need to foster scientific talent here, don't we? Mel, we're talking about fast, and Dave said something fascinating to me, which is that some brands are really considering slowing down. Wow, are they? Can you tell us about fast fashion and maybe just summarise for us what does it really mean? What is fast fashion? When did it happen? And, and maybe you can end by just saying, do you really think that people who are going fast are willing to pull back that speed? Um, yeah, I mean, fast fashion sort of arose in the, the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, since then, we've seen about a 400% increase in the volume of goods made to, I think, to the tune of between 120 and 150 billion garments per year being produced. Um, many of which only get one or two wares. Um, and, you know, the, the brands that um, I suppose espoused that first, that first race, uh, like the H&Ms, the Zaras and the Primarchs, um, they saw that the, there was an appetite for uh, consumption of, you know, sort of standardised, uh, ubiquitous clothing after World War II. That started to become uh, popular. The factories had to sort of actually design and produce that way. Um, and really when they started opening up in the US, um, the, the, the industry saw a, a great uptake. And essentially, you know, fast fashion you could design, you could uh, define as um, high volume, low margin, uh, with a very fast uh, speed to market from factory floor to, to garment shops. Now it's down to a, a couple of weeks, um, uh, as opposed to three to six months. So, you know, conventional brands, which are still, you know, the, the large proportion of brands um, design many months in advance um, and, you know, can expect a, a sort of minimum, sometimes a three-month production turnaround for the time it gets to Australia. Um, and then, you know, a, a, on the opposite end of that, fast fashion can actually have it being designed and on the floor within two to three weeks. Um, those brands tend to drop into store um, two to three times a week, new designs. Uh, so the turnaround time is incredibly swift. Um, I mean, two... Two to three times a week, it's nuts. Obviously, the main drive for this is make money. If you can sell something three times a week rather than once every month, you're going to do it. it. How realistic is it and how profitable do you think it can be in the future to pull that back? I, I, I'd love to know if we can do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at the richest, um, some of the richest um, people in the world, they are the owners of these corporations. They are private corporations, family-held um, Dan, Mr. Ortega and Zara was the richest man in the world for a very short time last year. That guy year. was worth 64 billion bucks, wasn't he? Just mm. personally. Yeah. Oh, 
And that's what we think about that. <laughs> um, so it's obviously an incredible profitable uh, business model. I think the opportunity for that sector, and you know, certainly recently both businesses have reported a decline in profits. Um, I think we are growing through a real uh, change and a real, you know, um, move towards. I won't say minimalism, definitely the, the conscious consumerism movement, yeah. I think is taking effect. You know, I think people and, you know, data shows that people are spending on experiences more uh, and entertainment more than possessions. I think if you look to the uh, rise of the sharing economy, um, that is really taking hold. Uh, businesses like Rent the Runway, uh, which is a, a rental business that started in America, um, where you can actually rent, you know, luxury items that you probably may only wear once or twice, you know, don't go out to black tie events that often. You can rent them. You know, they've now got a concession inside Nordstrom's. You would never have said a couple of years ago that a rental business would actually sit side by side within a department store. That would not have happened. So the, the sector is changing in models. Uh, ThreadUp, which is a very large US consignment store, you know, these businesses are getting um, sizable rounds of uh, venture capital funding as the opportunities in the rental market. We've got a, a great one here in Australia as well, quite a few businesses. Um, they are now taking a slice of that pie, um, where people are thinking, yeah, I actually don't want, you know, a wardrobe where 60% of it I don't wear. I'm happy to actually have those rental items um, for, for a portion of my wardrobe. So I think there's opportunity there for those businesses to actually address and, and enter into those different um, models. And, and still, you know, everyone needs to make a profit. It's, capitalism is, it doesn't have to be a dirty word. Um, but I think that they would, will have to shift from a linear model in the production sense of, you know, take, make, dispose to a circular model where we are going to become the fabric mills and the cotton fields of the future. Our donated clothes will be the raw materials of today. Um, but also that they'll be entering into very different business models to try to sort of keep those profits maintained. I think just on that idea that I raised before about how overwhelming some of this can be, listening to Mel there, I actually felt quite excited. This is a good time for innovation, and she's absolutely right when you think that people, of course everyone wants to make money, but there's clever entrepreneurs who are getting great big investment to do things like rent the runway. So it's a good time of possibility and change. Talking of change... Dave, when we chatted before this panel, I asked you about what happened when the fast fashion giants came into the Australian market, and was it all bad? And I thought the answer would be yes. And you said some interesting things there around some of the positives for Australian mm. brands, and I would love for you to just maybe discuss those a little bit with us sure. now. Uh, yeah, and um, the, those, those large fast fashion brands, uh, some, I think last year's figures, they, they've managed to sell about $600 million worth of product um, after, what, four or five years of being here, which is a lot, but it's still a small part of the, the industry here at retail. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, the industry, I mean, people were really scared of it, uh, and, uh, um, and really the way I see it and the way I've you know, talked to companies who have... Um, you know, been through, weathered through that, that storm is that actually the, it's, we, we were quite lazy as an industry at the high street level before they came and we were lazy because we could be, you know, we we're on the other side of the world, um, outside of the normal fashion cycle, we could, we had time to sort of get our stuff together uh, and copy and whatever else we were doing and the, um, so what, what, 
what the um, these guys coming in did was they showed what uh, um, they basically showed what could be done in the supply chain. And you know, some of the, although there's a lot of negatives around the supply chain, actually shortening down. I think this is partly what what Mel was saying is shortening down the supply chain actually takes a lot of waste out of it as well. So learning some of those those positive things about what the fast fashion com- companies have done, um, also becoming, and this is the, the key to it, is becoming much more design-driven, design, um, so uh, you know, fashion design-driven, but also product design-driven, so materials and these sorts of things. And we're seeing that. I, I, I hope people are starting to see that through the main labels that you, you go into the stores with. So you're starting to see collections that are much more unique to that label and also hopefully unique to Australian um, fashion as well, so not just international stuff. So it's, it's caused that sort of change uh, to, to happen. It's yeah. like you're forced to innovate when things are hard. So when those companies came storming into the Australian scene and everyone was freaking out, we're going to go bust, you're forced to innovate. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we're talking about with, within it when we're saying, okay, resource scarcity. You're forced to do something different, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's the other, possibility. The other thing around that is um, it's, it's been a... a, a um, it's, it's helped companies differentiate their product as well. So before it was kind of... You know, it wasn't really clear how different companies, high street fashion labels, were differentiating themselves. Okay. But now uh, it's kind of a level... If the H&Ms and Zara's have come into the market taken claim of that, that um, space that they take claim of. And our labels, whether they're small or large, can, can build a story yep. that's different from that. And that's a really powerful marketing um, value. An opportunity for mm. designers and for design students if, if you are here today. Because I don't want you to go home and think, design, oh, it's all the gloom, doom story. It isn't. It's a great place of possibility. It's the key. Yeah. Mm. In a, what I really want to know from you is what's it like in Germany? So tell us, can you share with us just a little bit about if you face, obviously you face some of the same challenges, but what, what's the fast fashion landscape like in Berlin and in Germany? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. I think um, that uh, right now we're taking a new approach of uh, not this kind of moral and negative approach of kind of stop consuming, like everything what you do is bad. Um, it's rather kind of to get the complexity of the system and to understand that we need solutions for the different desires of fashion. Because there is the desire where we want um, kind of a long-lasting product that we want to own our all life, like a, like a code that is really... Um, made for longevity, but there are also some pieces that we maybe just own for, let's say, we just wear them three times. And I think that's fine if they just don't stick into in our wardrobe and, like, are dying there. And, you know, like, if, if we just um, find new models of how can we consume those things that we really just need for those times. Yeah. You love that, and I love that bit. Is that really a conversation that's happening in the It is, it is. For example, there is uh, Kleiderei, which is a clothing library. So um, you can just subscribe there and have four pieces each month, uh, like changing them uh, constantly. And and thereby, it's it's just uh, such a better approach. Hmm? Wowee, where is it? It's in Hamburg. <laughs> we need to get one here. Yeah. And actually, like, there are a few of them. Like, also, like, Lena Library in, I think, Denmark or Sweden. Um, also in the Netherlands. Like, we found, find those uh, very much. And, like, also in, in other fields, like uh, denims, for example, mud jeans. You can lease mm. your denim. Just send it back after a year uh, or take a new one. It's 
such a convenient um, time to make it. And also like out in the outdoor field. I think that's a very good one. Um, kids wear, you know, like we see a lot of those examples uh, where it actually works quite well. And I think those experiences uh, can just be shared and, um, yeah. Can you tell us about that kids wear um, rental mm -hmm. or library service? Because I hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it the other day. Mm -hmm. And it's fabulous, right? Of course. Um, the brand is called Vigar. Um, it's from Vigar Svensson. And she um, yeah, started it up. And it was um, yeah, quite a sharing consumption um, approach. And in the beginning, like people like the mothers were sending the packages to um, next mothers. And sometimes there was a nice letter in there. And, you know, like um, just sharing this. And it get bigger and bigger and, and now they're professionalized and they have kind of a washing service, a repairing service and you know um, it's, it's just so convenient to subscribe and get always the same yeah. size, like the right size for the age of this child. Mel, are you hearing similar rumblings in our <laughs> industry that people are trying to do this stuff? Because I'm not, I wish I was. Are you, you speak to so many brands, you know so much about what's going on in this country. Do you think that we're going more this way? I think we are. I think um, the awareness in corporations now of what needs to be done to demonstrate stewardship or responsibility, in other words, um, along the breadth of the supply chain, so not just you know worker rights, which has been a, a large focus and continues to be at the factory level, um, but also right through to being responsible for how consumers can care for their clothes. And certainly we've already seen local examples of brands um, you know, demonstrating, uh, helping customers to look after their clothes because, you know, you see the stats between 50 and 80% of the impact, uh, environmental impact of our clothing actually comes from the use stage, so when we get them home. Um, and there's all different ways uh, and different tools that you can use and Fashion Revolution shares a lot of those as well. So brands are, are delving into that side of things, uh, helping customers care for their clothes. In terms of looking at those different business models here locally, no, that's a bit of a stretch. Um, we know that you know Europe and North America are, are many years ahead of the local market in terms of really intercepting um, that traditional chain uh, and, and innovating um, in, in a business sense. So that's that's still to come. Um, but I think you know I think a, a large part of it, it comes down to the conviction and commitment. Of, of the businesses um, and that informs how many people are in those teams to do that, that work and how many resources are allocated um, for your buying and your um, designing teams to your actual ethical sourcing sustainability teams and there's a bit of a mismatch there so you know it is, it is still a young industry here. Um, you know, Rana Plaza really was a line in the sand. Uh, you didn't have published factory lists a few years ago here, despite the fact that Nikes and Patagonias were doing that 20 years ago. Um, you never saw published lists from Australian brands, and now every couple of, uh, you know, every sort of six months or so, another brand here publishes, which is huge. It's a huge, huge move, because once you have transparency, you can manage the data, and you have accountability, because you can trace. So... Certainly that has taken leaps and bounds and continues to, and you'll see more and more of that. Um, but I think investment in this space really comes from the top, uh, and I do believe that um, you know, human rights are not just a, the preserve of, of corporations, they're a moral preserve of us as human beings, and it depends how much conviction there is on, at the board level um, and at, at the CEO level as to how much change they want to evoke in their business practice, um, and yeah. that will lead to the the people can actually affect it because this is a huge job for these businesses and these brands and it takes a lot 
a lot of time, um, and I think that we want to see the results immediately because we see these horrific you know, yeah. impacts and we, we want a solution now. Those solutions take time. Yeah. They take education for the people within the businesses as well. You need specialists. Um, we don't have that many people in Australia. There's certainly more now, but in that practice to and, affect that change. And it's also expensive. And if you're a smaller brand, how do you do it, Dave? <laughs> I mean, well, it's a hard question because when you're an independent designer and you're worrying about your bottom line, you've got to pay your rent. Is anyone buying anything? How are you then yeah. going to try and action this supply chain stuff, which is so important but not simple? Yeah, well, I, I guess, um, you know, to fill a little bit out on, on what Mel's saying as well, the... I actually do see, we, we at the council see a lot of um, organisations, small organisations that are coming through that want to help um, the industry to grow, like Fibre Shared and others that are coming, maybe bringing concepts from overseas, um, but trying to find out ways to connect those into um, labels. And usually that's through smaller labels, because the bigger ones have got their established practices. Not, so not always. Some bigger labels are looking to in, engage with that, but it's usually through smaller labels. And so actually at the, at the sort of grassroots level or the smaller emerging label, label level, I think there's actually a lot of resources and um, ability to, to connect to different ideas and different business models that can help them be um, truly sustainable. Uh, and um, yeah, so it, it's um, it's not it's not inaccessible. I, th I think. I but think where do they start? <laughs> uh, where do they start to? Yeah, to and I mean, engage? I know that's not your job to tell us, but well, do you know? Because I'm come sure. Come and talk to us. <laughs> come they? and talk to us, and we can. Uh, what, what, so, can young do... designers come, for instance, to Curated and ask? Yeah, yeah. So, Curated. Um, just for those who don't know, Curated it's a program um, that we run at the Council of Textile and Fashion for emerging designers. So. Not startups strictly, but just after startup stage, and the idea is to help them become um, sort of ongoing businesses over sort of you know, two to five years of being in the program. And it's there's lots of different facets to it, but one of them actually, in a mentioned before, is the collaboration. And one of the so we, we do all sorts of things like workshops and mentoring, and we have pop-ups. Um, there's one at Emporium at the moment. Um, please go and have a look. Um, but uh, so we do all this exciting stuff. But the really the fantastic um, thing that comes out of that is collaboration uh, between the brands uh, and uh, around things like oh where you know who does your pattern making oh yeah oh that's really interesting I, you know I need a good pattern maker or you know where you know how do I deal with I don't know where my fibres are coming from and another brand says well actually you know I've traced my fibre all the way back to the source you know so sharing that kind of information. Is, is happening, and the, I agree with you from what you said before, Claire, that the industry is really hopeless at collaborating, gen, generally speaking. Well, maybe we're but getting now, better. But now that I, I think we are getting better, and these smaller brands really do see value in that, and because they're getting real value out of it, and you know, it's yeah, more of a community I, kind of feel. I will say something hopeful. I hope I haven't been too negative. <laughs> Um, yeah, in the Australian context specifically, uh, we hold um, a brand-only forum each year, and that's unique, again, to Australia. So there's, there's brand collaborations that have been taking place in Europe and North America for quite some time, and their collaboration is quite sophisticated, um, and there's lots of... Um, uh, 
groups and initiatives that brands have signed up to, environmental as well as worker rights. Um, and they're seeing you know, some great progress. And in Australia, we actually hold a brand-specific forum on issues like living wages and traceability of supply chains, transparency, worker voice. Um, and I am pleased to say that you know, this has seen an incredible sense of collaboration between the brands. They're yeah. sharing the hardships, they're sharing their learnings, they're joining together um, and taking part in some of the world's leading best practice initiatives on issues like living wages. And, and that's a real development from a few years ago as well. So I think in Australia, the local brands don't talk about it as much as perhaps the H&Ms of the world do. Um, and that's something that has to, you know, I think, you know, go up a notch. And they're recognising that. A lot of the brands are recognising they need to have a louder voice and actually share with their customers what they're actually doing, because I think there is a general perception nothing's happening. I want to assure you a lot is. Uh, yeah. There's just a, a bit of a, a gap between what they're doing and what they're saying. Um, but, yeah, there is real developments, particularly in sourcing and, and responsible fibres, Businesses like Country Road, David Jones, Tiger Lily, they're all actually incorporating those principles into, into the design phase now um, and tracing beyond Tier 1 back to Tier 2 and some of them even to the raw materials because they're part of cotton programs. So it's definitely happening. Um, um, they're just not as loud. Yeah, I, I just, something just occurred to me as well. Just I'm going to finish up by asking Inna to share some ideas about what she, wants, what she tries to share with her students who want to get involved in this. But it just occurred to me that as a... Communi a fashion community, we don't celebrate enough the other jobs in the fashion industry outside of design. It's not only about being a designer, there's loads of other great cool things that you can do in the industry. And you know, when I was starting out as a journalist, there was no such thing as an ethical sourcing manager. That would be a great job. I mean, we should be celebrating those other avenues that you can excel at professionally in fashion. Inna, what do you tell particularly design students? Um, yeah. I know that you can't distill your entire course into one second, but what, what are some of the really key things that you would suggest that young designers, perhaps some of them here, could focus on? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that's, that's nice because I um, actually I also were at the RMIT to give a workshop about it and um, uh, yeah, I was very happy that I was invited for that, um, also from the Goethe Institute and then we had like two days very intense workshop on um, like really all the parts, the materials, the design, the business model, uh, all the stakeholders that need to be involved um, and like how actually recycling is happening and I would just recommend to kind of research in all these fields because I think the role of a designer um, has very much changed and we need to be more kind of interactive uh, thinking between all those things. It's not only about, um, I mean, it's going far beyond aesthetics. It's not only about how it looks like. And um, therefore, I would just like encourage you to take this. It might be a bit of challenging into like digging deeper in all those other areas, but um, it actually, I mean, you're the change agents of tomorrow. So take that chance, take um, all this knowledge that you can get and just talk with people uh, to make kind of coherent concepts. I think this is um, all about, yeah. And I think like a very nice quote is also that, um, um, how can we predict the future? The best way is to invent it yourself. So just um, think of like how you want to see, um, like which change you want to see and yeah, do it yourself. That is a very nice quote. <laughs> I'm going to write that on a quote tile and put it on Instagram <laughs> and hashtag RMIT gallery. And you should too. I want to throw questions up to the floor. The floor. Um, we could talk about this all day, but I want... I'd love to hear um, some questions from you guys about what you'd like to ask the panel. <laughs> um, sorry, I don't know how to use these. 
so when you were talking before, Melissa, about the fast fashion and its worth and everything and how, much sale, how many sales they make and everything like that in terms of value, do you know what the waste value margin is versus the profit margin? I was reading an article recently about uh, how retailers are actually losing a lot of money when they order so much stock that they can't move um, and then they have to keep discounting, discounting and then eventually discard it. With these fast fashion brands that don't tend to have sales so much, they already have low prices. Are they actually moving all of this stock as well? They still go on sale. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that overproduction, the overruns, is a huge problem. And textile waste is, you know, pre-consumer textile waste um, is a massive loss to their businesses. And that's a real argument for onshoring. Um, and we know that uh, the likes of, you know, Zara obviously have a large proportion. I think it's over 60% of what they make is closer to market. And the ability to doing that is you can test your market. You can put out shorter runs. You can test what works. And so they do that. Then they get direct feedback from their stores. And they'll push certain ones that are selling better and not overproduce the other ones. So that's a real argument for being pro proximate to your um, location, not having to wait three months for it to come from Asia to Europe, for example. Um, and they're definitely looking at that more, and H&M is looking at more localised production in, in Europe as well. Um, I think, you know, perhaps not so much from a mitigation perspective of textile waste, uh, but financially driven from, yeah, knowing that, yeah, there's a large portion that is not seeing the light of day. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that the, the data on, on, on the waste... Um, they don't tell us. We can't know it. And so it's fascinating, isn't it? Well, we can only guess. We guess a third of all clothes made every year are not sold. Are not sold, yeah. But we so don't know. It's a lot, yeah. 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 And, and the same for the cutting from waste, their right? sales, mm -hmm. So obviously they're not losing money by wasting their clothing. Yeah, and that comes from have being in sort of every corner of the world, you know. So when you spread out, when you have that, that much volume of sales opportunities, yeah, you're making it in that way. Thank you. Hmm. So, who is next? Who has another question? Do you want to raise your hand? I'm not sure if this is a really difficult question. I watched um, a documentary the other day that kind of... And I really hold back from fast fashion because I feel like I'm throwing money at people I don't support. And in this documentary, it, it kind of outlined how catastrophic it would be to really pull out of kind of offshore production, which to me was kind of the flip of the coin, because I was like, it should all just stop, you know, like, stop it all. And I just, I guess I wonder, as a consumer, how, or is anyone looking into that, and how that is kind of balanced out, as in so much stuff is being produced, and people are living off those wages, and they're probably not having great lives or great wages, but how that balances, or how we look at not harming people more, I guess, but I don't can know. I, can I start on that one? Yeah. And Mel yeah. will have a, um, has, has a lot of knowledge on this area, but uh, our industry, which employs, I think, I, I've heard you quote Mel, a sixth of the world's workforce, something mm. like this, uh, it's an industry that has helped many countries get out of you know, very difficult economic um, situations, and if you look at countries like Bangladesh at the moment, who are growing uh, economically really fast, uh, I think around 80% of their exports are textile, clothing related, something like that. So obviously, yeah, to your point, uh, they, uh, it would be devastating to them if there was a big backlash against buying product from there. And that's, again, consumers ultimately, I think, drive that sort of thing. And I think after the Rana Plaza disaster, 
that was one of the things that people were really mindful of trying to make sure that that didn't happen. So you've got that side of it, but at the same uh, time, it is, it's in those countries where so much of the really, really horrible stuff happens. So it's about dealing with those things, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, um, and recognising the point that you're making, which is that you know, this is an industry that can help do so much good around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I would mirror what Dave says. I mean, yeah, 85% of uh, Bangladesh's GDP is from the textile industry and, and many other countries. Haiti um, are reliant on that industry. So we don't advocate boycotting. Um, we don't advocate pulling out of countries. Um, we want these people to not only survive but to thrive. Uh, and so our platform is to encourage consumers to encourage the brands that they love to do better. So there's an opportunity always for, for doing better. Um, if these people we know are on a minimum wage, it's not sufficient for a decent livelihood, encourage the brands that you love to pay them a living wage. And getting to that living wage has been evading the industry for years now and we're kind of all tired of talking about it but we have to keep talking about it because it is essential to these people's lively, livelihoods. They shouldn't walk into a factory and not take home a decent wage, nor should they walk in and, and die as a result of making a t-shirt. So um, really the premise is we want everyone to stay working and we want those jobs to actually have meaning and not just um, be for the sake of a $5 t-shirt. So whilst employment is, is critical, it's at what cost? You know, if you're working seven days a week and you're working 18 hours a day, you're not able to see your children maybe more than once a year, you support your family, um, you don't have decent conditions in which you live in, um, that's that's is that a decent life? So, at what cost is are we are we you know um, Im improving these countries? So, yeah, definitely we want these people to uh, continue working, but it's there's always an opportunity for those conditions to do better. And and whilst issues like living wage evades everyone, um, whilst everyone's working very hard on it, there's opportunities like fair trade factories. Um, you know, Patagonia, for instance. You know, fair trade has generally stayed in that commodity space. Um, so your sugar tea and for fashion cotton. Now there's fair trade certified factories. And Patagonia have gone down that route and all of this when we're now is made in those factories. So that's their way of, of ensuring that those standards are, are higher um, for their workforce whilst a lot of other mechanisms are being worked on. So there's, there's always that opportunity. It's just letting the brands know that you want them to, to, to work on it. Absolutely. Do we have any Thanks. more? Oh, a show of hands. One here? Hi, um, I'm actually a designer and I am doing a sustainable fashion brand. Great. And um, what I'm struggling with is that there is a lot of aspects of designing as we're talking about that you need to take into consideration. So we have production, material, where is it made? And then there is that cycle, quality. And every single time you make the right decision towards any of those things, your price point goes up. And consequently, there is somewhere a balance that you need to strike because at the end of the day, it's the people who vote for what they buy. And if you don't have the money, you just don't have the money. So I don't know. This is what I'm kind of struggling to, to kind of find that right balance because you can have the uh, initiative to really tick all the boxes. But then at the end of it, once you ticked all of them, you might just sort of fall down on the other end. <laughs> so... What, your idea, what are your ideas about this? Ina, I'm sure you have yeah. some ideas on this. <laughs> I mean, um, obviously, it's also about the economy of scale. Um, like the, when we, for example, recycled polyester right now, it's much more expensive than normal polyester. That shouldn't be. I mean, it's, uh, it's a secondary resource. So, for example, this one, if we would, like, 
change um, completely the um, polyester um, to just recycled one, we have just much more, and it's of course getting cheaper. It's just the uh, the amount that is kind of purchased right now. So just as one example, I think we need to kind of go in this direction. It will autonomously fo like follow that um, it's also getting more affordable. Yeah, I, th I think another. Uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's it's, it's a really tough. Um, it's a tough balancing act to get all that together. Um, but w one of the things that I think we have, uh, and it's important to recognise in the fashion industry, is that it's an industry with so many niches. I think so often we 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 think about the industry uh, as one fashion industry, or maybe uh, two or three different sort of segments. Um, there are just so many niches, and you know we come across them all the time. And so there is potential to do, you know, to do a sustainable fashion label with a with your particular um, sort of design aesthetic or, or whatever you're doing, and to find as long as you can find those those customers, the consumers that are in that niche, then you can develop a good business out of that. And a lot of fashion companies have done that. Um, so. That, that's just putting this positive spin on. It's really, really hard to find that. Um, and, and again, that's what the curated program is about. I mean, if it fits for you, we'd love to talk to you about it. But it, it's yeah. about helping. It's also about helping to educate consumers to look for those needs. That you know, mm. if you're into space fairy something or other, there's labels yeah. for you seriously. <laughs> and I mean, it's it's about helping both connect and. Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful. And I think it's yeah. also about like realizing that this is your kind of unique point then, like yeah. the things that you yeah. chose and kind of, yeah. I think this is the value that you have to give to the to your customer. And um, for example, we also work with a kind of interactive label in garments that is telling this story. So kind of people can scan that and it's an interface to consumers, also to the recyclers later on, but like really to, to engage the customer into the whole story and to the life cycle of a garment so he really knows, wow, I have much, much more more of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have something to add, which is that I think it's so cool that you're doing that and so modern. <laughs> and actually, fashion is now so very, very full. I mean, there's so much competition and it's so hard to cut through. And my feeling from a media perspective is that only those with a big, strong, solid story yeah. will cut through. So yeah. you're already... That's good. You got something. Mm. It's, it's Imagine if you weren't doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't consider doing anything else, really. But um, I think what I find um, that I would like to move towards is more conversation about what people actually really need to do sort of bespoke design orders. Like, I do accessories, not garments. And kind of asking people for what they need as opposed to trying to figure out what they need and see how it goes. So I think that's another thing to consider with, with designing for people at the end of the day and you kind of can open up a conversation now with so much social media and, yeah, mm -hmm. really start, yeah. I think what's... Yeah. This, oh, sorry. Um, I was just going to say, um, you know, now brands have an incredible platform to be educators as well, and a lot of brands are actually taking that up. So those, those other brands that are espousing the, the, the attributes that you're, you're doing so in your brand are actually informing why they're taking those measures, what they're doing about it. And they're, they're, they're having this dual role of, of actually being a retailer and an educator. And that's a phenomenal opportunity that you can take up as well. And you're part of that redefinition of value. You are swimming against the tide, but you've got lots of support and lots of us that are also doing so. Um, but you have a chance to redefine that for you know, a, yeah. a great increasing number of the population. So grab it. 
also yes. like the whole point about the common like the community i mean if you're inviting people to kind of yeah customize their own things or things like that i think this is uh, like growing very much um, also like the post couture collective um, for example they're just selling the uh, pattern to kind of cut out with a laser cutter and just on a usb stick so you can make your own garment and you can also make your own pattern so really rethinking and inviting the customer um, producing on demand like all those things I think these are very special and if you go this path I think it will be very valuable mm. we have time for one more question uh, post couture collective and wrap mm. oh cool Here's I don't know about that we should find that yes. <laughs> um, There's I know that you've been aching to ask a question, so please, can we give the mic? Thank Good you. Um, I was just wondering, as a journalist, what role do you think the media are playing in spreading this message, and are they using their platforms well enough? Well, I am. I'm not doubting <laughs> that. I'm just saying, but like, in a general sense. I was only joking. Yeah. Um, uh, they have a huge role, and they really need to be telling more of these stories. So um, I do think that things in particular around fashion revolution... Um, which is the campaign that Mel fronts here. That's given a great opportunity for storytelling around these issues. Exhibitions like this give journalists great opportunities to tell these stories. Um, it's happening more and more, but I do think the industry has been a little bit sluggish. But I think we're getting better. I think we're getting better. And, and you know, traditionally, magazines have been there to sell you clothes. I think that the future of making a modern magazine needs to be a little bit more about embracing broader issues and, and telling more stories. That's my personal view, so yeah. Marie Claire USA just came out with their, their sustainability issue. So the more people that buy it, will show them that there's a, there's a sizable readership for that kind of content. And that's all about celebrating all the innovators that we've been you know, talking about and are actually changing, that, yeah. disrupting that industry. So. You know, if we could show them that that's a really popular title, maybe we'll get two a year. <laughs> and also, you know, we journalists love cool stories. So if people are doing interesting work and innovative new things, then we love it. So the more designers that get involved in this conversation and the more positive stories that we can share and decode, the better, I think. Well, um, thank you to our um, speakers today. Can we a uh, big hand of applause? <laughs> Thank you very much for coming today. Um, please pick up one of um, our um, invitations which have all the public programs listed. Uh, they are also uh, listed in Culture Magazine, which is free at the front desk. Um, and we have uh, the fast fashion uh, catalogue, which really goes in depth um, about um, all of these. It's only $5. And we have um, Claire Press's book for sale as well during the exhibition. So um, we have a lot of ways we can start to think about this, participate in the conversation. Please tell your friends about the exhibition um, and spread the word because this is a very important topic. Thank you very much for being here. <laughs>